Hi, everyone. It's Sid Finkelstein, and this is the Sidcast. You know, it's the place where I get uh, kind of a great gift, which is to have these great conversations uh, full of information and revealing and engaging with fascinating people that uh, you know many of us uh, don't even don't even know. Uh, until, you know, we start to get into it. And it's kind of amazing that so many people probably don't even know who uh, my guest is today. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is a woman that uh, actually was the chair of the National Finance Committee, uh, National Finance Chair of the Democratic National Committee, um, and helped um, elect President, uh, President Obama. Uh, she's a woman that's lived um, a lot of different places in the world, has a fascinating family background and has tried to use uh, what was and uh, what is frankly uh, a life uh, of, of extreme privilege to help many, many other people. I'm talking about Jane Watson Stetson. If you might know the name Watson, some of you might know, business historians. Turns out that the founder of IBM was Thomas Watson and Jane is... Uh, is Mr. Watson's granddaughter. So um, you talk about someone who's coming from a, uh, a background of uh, tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, wealth and, uh, and, and, and privilege and has had to make her way through the world uh, trying to deal with that and do something good with that. Now I know a lot, a lot of people say it's not a bad thing to deal with. I, could, uh, I, I wouldn't mind having that problem. But what, one thing you learn when you talk to people that, um, that, that, that have advantages uh, from an early age is that they, they've got the same problems and challenges as all of us. And sometimes, sometimes they're even tougher uh, because what, what does everybody want? What, what do you want? What do I want? Um, there's a lot of answers to that. But I'm going to put it that at the top of the list. You know, we want, we want, to, we, we want to be meaningful. We want to know that we counted. We have our time in, on earth and life of whatever number of years it is, hopefully a lot. Uh, and and what? How has the world changed? What have we done? How have we impacted anyone else? What is the purpose of our of our life? What is the meaning of our lives? I mean, it sounds pretty philosophical, but the truth is that everyone everyone needs to answer that. Everyone tries to answer that, and and it's no different uh, for the uh, granddaughter of a of the founder of uh, of IBM than it is for um, for anyone else. And uh, you know, you get a you get a feel for for this when you talk to her because. Uh, it was, uh, there were a lot of challenges that she went through. You know, many people assume if you have a lot of wealth, everything flows to you, everything is great. And, uh, and you know, there's some, there is some truth to that, but you still have to make your way. And, um, and Jane was just very, uh, is very honest uh, when you talk to her about her life and her challenges and her accomplishments, which are, uh, which are significant. Um, I already mentioned the, um, um, the support she had for President Obama, and actually she describes the first time she met uh, President Obama, I think she was there with, uh, uh, with one of her daughters, uh, and how he interacted with her and with, uh, and with uh, her daughter at, that, at the time. And um, those are the types of stories I think are, are, just, uh, are just fascinating and just uh, really interesting to hear about. We talked actually about parenting. You know, it's a pretty eclectic uh, conversation. We talked about parenting and, you know, what do you, what do you tell your kids? In other words, you know, the kids really want to hear what we have to say. Yeah, when, you know, when my daughter was uh, three, four, five, eight, she, there's nothing I could say that she didn't like. Well, almost. But once, you know, kids get into teenage years, obviously we know that peers become much more important and they, they, they move on, they grow up, they have their own lives. Uh, but it's an interesting 
question again, very practical and philosophical at the same time, uh, that Jane and I had uh, kind of a good back and forth on, which is, uh, do our kids really want to tell us, really want to hear from us? Do they really want us to tell them what we think? Uh, Jane, not so sure. I, I kind of like, I, I kind of believe the answer is yes. Uh, but you have to communicate it the right way. I say this a lot. I, um, I think uh, the onus of communicating, onus of speaking to someone is to be able to communicate whatever your message is in a way that the recipient, what the, that, in a way that the listener gets. This is true for a teacher. Uh, it's true for a parent. It's true for, uh, for anyone. Uh, you want people to you want people to understand what your point is. You want them to get what you have to say. And if they don't get it, it's not their fault. It's actually your fault because you haven't communicated as well as you could. Uh, and you know that's that's just something that's very practical, very uh, uh, very relevant. Uh, so uh, Jane's got a great story. She lived in Paris, one of my favorite cities. Uh, she lived there for years. Um, and uh, again, because it's Jane Watson Stetson and, and has you know this. This different background from, uh, from, from, from many other people. You know, her father was uh, the U.S. ambassador to France. You can imagine the experience for a young woman living in, in Paris in, the, in, that type of, uh, uh, in that type of circumstance and the learning uh, that she went through and how it really had, uh, had a long-term impact on her thinking, not just about global issues or, or, or language or culture, but on, on, on this more fundamental question, which is, you know, why do we exist as people? What, 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 why are we here? What are we trying to do? What is, our, what is the meaning that we're looking for? And in, in Jane's case, uh, uh, she's really supported a lot of educational institutions in addition to um, national democratic uh, uh, political causes and many, many other things. So she's, uh, uh, she's really someone who's walked the walk. So it's a great, uh, great opportunity to learn from someone and engage with someone that uh, you, you may not have known, uh, known much about, about Jane, but you're about to find out a lot. And I think uh, it's going to be a journey uh, we're all going to enjoy taking. We're here with Jane Watson Stetson on the Sidcast. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. Glad great to, be to here. great to have you. And uh, um, you've done a lot of uh, really cool, interesting things in your uh, in your life and in your career. And I, I want to start with something that's more uh, maybe ten ten is it ten ten twelve years ago when when you started getting involved in fundraising for um, democratic politicians. And I think you did it right in, in Vermont to start. What got you kind of up and ready to say, I want to, I want to play a role. Well, actually, I have been involved in democratic politics since I was 30. So it's 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I started in Vermont with uh, local politicians, mm-hmm. um, Peter Welch, back in the day when he was running for Congress, Howard Dean, when he's running for governor. Um, I did a fundraiser for Howard Dean with the Kingston Trio, who are friends of ours. And that sort of launched my yep. fundraising. And uh, were you involved with raising money for Howard Dean when he ran for president? Absolutely. I was on the dean's list. Is that what they called the... That's what they called it. So can I ask you, you know, the famous, it's now in a number of years, but he gave, was it a speech or was it in a debate? I can't quite recall when he, I don't even remember everything he said, but it got a lot of bad press. Um, you know what I'm talking about? I do. I yeah. remember it vividly. Yeah. Um, it was uh, referred to as the scream. The scream, yes. And um, can, can you just kind of remind listeners who might not know, just like I can't remember all the details of that, what the context he was. He had lost Iowa, mm-hmm. and he was heading to New Hampshire. Sorry, Jane, what year are we talking about? More. Oh, please. 
I know. Don't don't make me do this. Um, it was the it was it when Bill Clinton was elected. It was um, no. It was after that. Uh, I'm sorry, I cannot recall the year. Okay, we'll we'll get that. Uh, we'll try to try to find that year. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll add it because it's all blurring at this point. Um, so he had just lost Iowa, and he was coming to New Hampshire, and he was addressing the crowd upon his loss, and he was trying to make a. A, a statement about yeah. his loss, and he had been given advice by Harkin to get out there and rally the crowds because everybody was so disappointed. Mm-hmm. And he got out there and rallied the crowd, but the people who were uh, running the sound cut the crowd sound and only had his sound uh. um over the monitors. Right, so right. it sounded like he was screaming, and the truth of the matter is is that he was speaking over the crowd, and that's how that... Were you there that evening? Mm-mm. I was in Vermont. I was in our living room watching him out on the stage with my husband, and we watched this performance, and we thought, we're cooked. You, it's you, over. You knew, you knew it we at knew the it. time. We I, knew it immediately. Oh, my. We knew it immediately because cool. he looked like he was an insane man. <laughs> and he already had such bad press because he was a different kind of candidate. He wasn't the usual candidate. Um, and, you know, he's a very, very good friend of ours. So we know him quite well. And he's highly intelligent yes. and highly thoughtful. But he was not received as such. He was received as a sort of a Vermont lefty politician, which he just wasn't. So that, that that leads naturally to ask you about Bernie Sanders, even though I was going to ask you about fundraising and supporting, but we'll we'll jump around a little bit. Bernie Sanders really is a left wing Vermont politician, and he did unbelievably well. He did. I think that the country and especially the youth of our country are looking for a different kind of candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, as am I. Um, yep. Uh, I think sometimes uh, you can get. Um, wowed a little bit by uh, rhetoric, um, and it takes a little bit of time to um, assess what what a politician says he can do and what he can actually do. Right, right. And uh, so I think that I think that Bernie says a lot of things that I agree with. Um, I'm not always sure that we can accomplish all the things that he'd like to or promises to accomplish, not unlike the person we have in office right now. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, and, um, yeah, so you've been close to a lot of, a lot of campaigns, and including at the presidential level. Um, how Do you think people can tell when, whether someone has that special it, whatever that is, that just... You know, there's just some. Is it charisma? Is it just presence? Is it just this overwhelmingly capable or, or great intellect? Is it someone, as many have said now about President Trump, that can just connects to what people are really thinking but are afraid to say? You know, whatever, whatever it happens to I me, mean, do people kind of know it in some way? I can't speak for others. I do. You do. I know authenticity when I see it. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? That's what I'm talking about. That's what I want is authenticity. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, with Barack Obama, I knew immediately 
that he was the candidate that I was going to back because I felt that he had the brain power which we needed. Mm. Um, we were coming off. Uh, I don't want to make this partisan at all um, because I don't. I don't think being partisan at this point in our country is a, is a good way to be. I think we need to come together. I think we need leaders who um, who try to represent all of us rather than some of us. And um, and I think there. I think it's very hard to find the right authentic politician, given the fact that the press uh, adds so much to the conversation. And that's not to say that I feel that the press shouldn't be involved, but I think we've gone from a press that was a reporting press to a press today that is a, um, a non-innocent bystander. Right, right. Very interesting. So ba back to when you met, um, what was the context when you first met uh, Barack Obama? I was, uh, I had become finance chair for Peter Welch who also is a very close friend of ours. And I was convinced that he was the right person to be our congressman. And so I had been working very, very hard for him. And Barack Obama was doing a book tour. And we were all invited up to the book tour in Washington, mm -hmm. I mean, in, um, in Burlington. Mm -hmm. And I remember as I pulled up to park my car, I saw students hanging off the bars of the Ira Allen Chapel to hear Barack Obama, and I thought, hmm, mm, this it's really is interesting. Yeah. And then I went in, and because I was his finance chair, I had a front row seat. Uh, I brought my 12-year-old daughter at the time mm -hmm. and, uh, and heard him speak. I had heard him previously at, in Boston when he did the, the Purple speech um, at the Democratic Convention in Boston mm -hmm. in, what, 2004? And so I already mm -hmm. knew a little bit about him. I had been following him lightly. And then I went in and I heard him speak, and then I met him after the uh, talk. There was a little reception, and a bunch of us went to the reception, and I shoved my little 12-year-old in front of me, <laughs> and I said, shake his hand. Yeah. And then um, I got to shake his hand, and I said to him, um, if you decide you're going to run for president, count me in. And that was that. And then in February, um, he announced. And in March, I joined the uh, finance committee for Barack Obama. Right, right. So you, so there was, there was this authenticity, as you describe, that you saw. You totally, totally. He uh, and uh, yeah, I should have said this. He, when he met my daughter, he held out his hand to talk with her. And he didn't do sort of an adult speak mm. with a kid. Mm -hmm. He talked to her on the same level. Mm. He recognized that she was, a, she had a brain. And he spoke with her in a very adult way, mm -hmm. but not over her head. He just spoke directly with her. And I remember thinking, wow, this is a really interesting person. This is somebody that I would really like to f support. And I also felt at that time that we really needed a candidate that spoke to a younger generation. I, and I feel that today. I feel like our generation has had our day. And the kids that are coming up are the ones who need to be represented because the world has changed so much since my youth. Um, it's a different world. Right, right. Why, why is it so difficult to get young people to vote? 
And I know they were more than ever before, for, especially for Bernie Sanders. And now in, the, I guess, the midterms, um, um, it's, it's a pretty good turnout. But there's so many young people that, despite all their passion, they don't, they don't vote compared to older people. I think there are a lot of distractions. <laughs> I think, you know, the Internet, there, television. There are. There um, are. And I think there's been a lot of disappointment. Mm. Um, I remember when I was 18 or 19 years old uh, looking at the world and feeling pretty powerless about how the world was going to go. Yeah. Uh, I think our generation tends to, to, to glom on to mm. what we have in terms of power. Um, one of my biggest frustrations in government is that our politicians don't mentor up. They really don't see themselves as ever retiring. They hang on to their seats as long as they can. And we don't really have any younger folks being mentored up into uh, that spot. Right, right. There, there was talk of term limits. Uh, maybe it's got to be 10 or 15 years ago that became something. And um, I always thought, boy, this will be amazing if the people that will, that will end up actually um, having to give up their, their jobs that they clearly love and battle for nonstop – they're the ones that will have to say we're going to have term limits. The, the probability of this happening is extremely low. I'm a huge proponent of term limits because I think we change. People change. The world changes. And speaking for myself, I, I am not in a good position to advise my kids how to live their lives. They have a different experience than I had. I can give them the basic values that I have. Yep. But I can't really dictate how they get to where they're going. Because I don't have the same experience. Well, could, could, we, could we talk about parenting a little bit? Because you just brought it up. Uh, I suspect you are in the um, minority to extreme minority in that point of view. Most parents think, and know it's a tough message and doesn't always get through, but believe part of their role is, yeah, to have an opinion and express that opinion and coach. And, you know, we don't even have to talk about helicopter parenting and any of that. Just, you know, your average parents that care about their kids. And, um, and so it's interesting when you say, you know, well, you're, you're a different person, different generation, and can you really speak to what um, your own children need at their, point, at their stage of life? Uh, I find it, um, um, I think, I just think it's unusual. Well, I have not gotten here on my own. I have three daughters who are strong-willed, <laughs> have their own lives, and they've made yes. it pretty clear to me yes. that they don't really want my advice. They love me. Yeah. They want to hang with me, mm -hmm. but they don't want to hear what I think about what they're doing. They don't. And so for me, the big challenge in the last, I would say, five years, my youngest is now 25, my eldest is 35, mm -hmm. almost. Um, the big, biggest challenge for me has really been to get out, to try to get out of their way. I don't always succeed. Right. Um, right. But now at least I recognize when I am in my mom mode of you should do this, shoulda, woulda, coulda are words that... They're that, bad words. They're bad words, and they don't help anybody, and they are, I think, ultimately, at the end of the day, feeding my ego or my neediness. Mm. They mm. are not enhancing the lives of my daughters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about because uh, I have the impression that when you not you, but when, when one, one of us, uh, shares their point of view with their kids, 
some of, and a lot of it is resisted, some of it sinks in. Because in fact, and I'm sure you've seen that, there, there, there are no doubt some aspects of your, your daughters that you can you see kind of you. You see you, see, you, see you. and I don't mean just in a genetic uh, way. Um, so some of it does sink through. Uh, what do you think? When I see traits of my daughters, uh, my traits, particularly the traits that I don't like of <laughs> That's myself. That's a different story. We don't want in that. In my children, yeah. uh, it makes me insane. Mm. However, mm. it's not useful for me to, um, to insert myself. I found that it's not useful for me to insert myself. If yeah. they need my help, mm. they know that they can ask me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's way more useful for me to wait and for them if I can wait for them to ask me. Uh, which, which they do. Periodically. Periodically, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What about this um, concern a lot of parents have about wanting to avoid, one, making sure their kids don't have really bad things happen to them um, or, ha- or fail? A lot of parents are afraid. I mean, I know failure is a way to learn, and everybody, kids and us, we fail, we fail all the time, and if we're open-minded, we're going to get better. But a lot of parents that just try to protect their kids. I think it's perfectly reasonable to protect your kids mm-hmm. until they're adults. Mm-hmm. And I think the mistake that I and many parents have made over the years is protecting them for too long mm-hmm. because the inevitable happens. You know, there is a failure. There is a heartbreak. There is a fall. And if you don't let them have that experience, you're just avoiding the reality of life. Life is tough, and you have to, you have to experience life in order mm-hmm. to get through it, I think. Yeah. yeah, you have to build up some of that resilience, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of thick skin to know that, you know, all the things that happen, things people say, uh, it's not about, I mean, this is, this is like my, something I have said to my daughter for example, um, it's not about you, it's about them. Um, and it's not always 100% true, even though it's mostly true. Uh, and it actually gives people, I think, I mean, I say it about myself too. You know, people say, you know, what does this guy know? What is he doing? What's he, whatever it happens to be. But um, so now I'm pausing because I know the value of feedback is unbelievably important in business and in all sorts of, all sorts of uh, arenas. But at the same time, um, um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, you can't let other people's rules, values, um, expectations govern your life uh, because then you can't be yourself. On the other hand, we do all live in a society that has some, maybe less these days, but some civil discourse. And, um, um, and getting better requires feedback, right? It requires you to learn um, and hear things you could be doing better you don't have to always agree with that feedback, but it's important to, to hear. I mean, it's a pretty core uh, idea in business, certainly, when we talk about building leaders. But I think if I came to you and I said, you know, I really don't like this podcast. Mm-hmm. It's really a terrible podcast. Yep. And you hadn't asked me for that feedback. Right. I'm willing to bet that you'd blow it off. Because it wouldn't be... Well, because you hadn't asked for it, or yeah, you hadn't. Yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is, if my kids, if I give my kids unsolicited feedback, mm-hmm. it's about my insecurities. Right. It's not about them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If they're fine, you know, maybe they aren't doing exactly what I'd hoped they would be doing, 
But if they're fine and they aren't, you know, falling off the cliff, right? Um, then I feel like uh, I should just be quiet yeah. and let them yeah. have their own lives. Now, that being said, if I see something detrimental going on, I will be the first to step up and say, have you thought about this? Yeah. Have you yeah. considered that? Mm-hmm. But in terms of uh, offering, and I love offering advice. I, of course I think I'm the smartest parent on earth, but I don't think it's useful. So I work, I mean, I work on this. Yeah. It's, it's an could, issue. I, I could see that <laughs> as you're describing it and thinking, and thinking about it and, and conveying it. So maybe everyone, every parent has, you know, it's like a continuum of, 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 in, of imposition <laughs> or interaction. And everyone has to decide where the right place is, which is total, the, op, the ends are totally hands off versus helicopter parenting micromanager. And most people end up somewhere in, in the middle. But it is true, and I'm going to ask you if you agree with this or you have, you know, you've done this yourself or seen it. At various points in life, you move uh, along that continuum to more involvement or less involvement, depending on what's going on. Ideally, depending on what's going on with children as opposed to what's going on with us. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. So having that self-awareness to be alert about how we are as parents um, and, and our interaction with kids, I don't think a lot of people ha- are self-aware at all about that. Um, actually, my experience is very few people are self-aware about just about anything um, in you know, I work with a lot of leaders um, really around the world, and we talk about self-awareness, and I always try to encourage that. Um, and the best leaders are ones that know their own faults and know and, and, and have almost a situational perspective where there's an authenticity, there's a core, but they know that they need to adapt, let's call it, to the circumstances around them. Um, and so this conversation is kind of making me realize maybe parents aren't as good at that as... As, as could be. What kind of training do parents get anyways on how to be a parent? None. I, I didn't get any training. I, I, None. Maybe you, you, what we observe our own parents, to be sure, for better or for worse, that we got that, just as, as your kids are observing you and your, your husband and my daughter's observing me and my wife. Um, but there's not a lot of training. I have um, one benefit these days, which is that I have a grandson. Oh. A five-year-old grandson. And talk about wanting to sort of dictate policy. You get a grandchild, and of course you are now the experienced parent. Mm -hmm. And it's an opportunity to really look at, it's been an opportunity for me to look at my own behavior, Hmm. to let my daughter parent her son. Do I agree with everything she does? Absolutely not. Do I grumble periodically to my husband Mm -hmm. about why doesn't she do this? Sure. Mm. But for the most part, She's a wonderful parent, and it reflects for me the fact that I wasn't such a bad parent. She's loving, she's kind, she's thoughtful with her son, and he's a gem. So, you know, while I may have some disagreement with some of the ways that she's parenting him, it's not my job. Yeah. My job is just to love him and to go sledding with him the other day. Isn't the job of a <laughs> grandparent to spoil the kid and then leave him? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Uh, I feel like my role with my grandson is to show him the things that I didn't have time to show my own children. uh, For instance, like growing carrots or talking to him about the woods or 
you know, stuff that is meaningful to me that I think someday, maybe later in life, he can think back about his granny mm-hmm. and fondly remember um, bits and pieces of his of his childhood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's actually not a topic I thought a great deal about because uh, I'm not a grandparent um, yet. Um, but yeah, what is the role of a grandparent? And I kind of just said facetiously, the role of the grandparents is, is, the, is to spoil the kid because you know people say that. But more meaningful or more realistically, you know, you're getting a chance to um, to teach again, um, and it's probably a more receptive audience. I'm gonna I'm gonna say totally. Yeah, yeah. totally. He loves me, and I love him. We have a relationship that's very different, and he in no way replaces his mother with me. It's very, very clear who I am and who his mother is. Mm. So we have this kind of friendship Mm. that uh, we just have an understanding. And and it's it's an amazing gift to have this this little kid in my life. And as I said, I went sledding the other day with him, which I'm mentioning again because I'm 65. And I had to get down on that sled. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're 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 looking fine here across across from me in the studio. So I did it, and I went you, down multiple times oh with him, my. and I felt like I was a child again, and it was so much fun. It's a it it's it's a classic gift for yourself and totally. for for the child for the grandson. Wow, we're talking with Jane Watson Stetson. Let's take a short break, and we'll be right back. This is the SIDCast, and my name is Sidney Finkelstein, and we're back with Jane Watson Stetson. We were just talking at, uh, before the break um, about being a parent and parenting and being a grandparent as well, um, and maybe that's a good segue to go back to when, uh, when you, Jane, were younger, and uh, um, one, of the, one of the things that's really interesting about, um, about you and your family is your, your father was an ambassador U.S. ambassador to France, and you moved to Paris. Um, I guess early you were in your early twenties or nineteen. Not you were nineteen. So, and you lived there for I think eight years or something like that. So, um, um, was that you had been to France before that, perhaps as family trips or? I first went to France when I was, I believe, four years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father had a business trip and took, at that point, his five children. We ended up being six. But uh, five of us, my eldest sister was, I believe, six, Mm -hmm. and the youngest was nine months old. Hmm. And my mother packed us all up. We took the Mauritania, landed in Le Havre, and then uh, then we had a VW bus, and we traveled around Europe. Wow, what a trip. Just an amazing, I remember it vividly. Uh, And I have a terrible memory, but it (laughs) um, it was an extraordinary trip. Yeah. Um, I, I we went to Courchevel to ski. In um, let's see, my dad was there from sixty eight to seventy three, or sixty nine to seventy three. So I think in sixty seven we went to Courchevel, and mm-hmm. he got the call, inviting him to be the ambassador. In those days, it was very different than it is today. How so? Um. I think um, I think ambassadorial posts were um, more important, mm. possibly, mm-hmm. than they are today. Mm. I think they're important, but I think um, 
I rarely say anything bad about our former President Obama because I love him with all my heart. But I think that for him, ambassadors were not really all that important. I think they were part of the, the uh, fabric. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he um, spent a lot of time communicating with them. When my father was ambassador, um, Nixon and Kissinger were there all the time. And it was uh, there as in, in Paris. In Paris. Talking to him. And, and, and he would go back to Washington and have conversations. And I think the foreign relations mm. side of our politics was highly regarded. Our allies were important to us. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. tried to pick people who um, reflected our values. Uh, not that we don't today, but I think it's just different from yeah. my conversations with our former ambassadors, friends of mine who went over under Obama. Um, I think you. I think they really had to make their own way, mm-hmm. and I don't think there was a lot of conversation with Washington because Obama was doing a lot of other. Right. Do you think because Kissinger was so f- kind of focused, he was he was the right hand man of President Nixon, um, and he was all about global relations and 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 understood that that was kind of core to how we thought about the world. Maybe that was. One of the factors, or or is it really? It's, it was that way even before that too, and um, this was a continuation. I'm just wondering whether it's. it's Kissinger. I think Kissinger ramped it up, but yeah, I think yeah. before that, our relations, our foreign relations, were important to us. I think today, it's it's drifted a lot. I think our allies, sure. um, our relationships with our allies were extremely important, and um, our our notion of being the keepers of, of world peace was highly regarded. Um, I'm not sure that's consistent with our policies today. Yeah, well, that was said uh, appropriately diplomatically. It's clearly not consistent with our, in my view, with, uh, with uh, present-day policies. Um, uh, so being, so did you live, where did you live? I lived at the embassy, at the residence. At the residence. So when my parents moved to Paris, the first residence was Avenue Diena. And uh, we came on the heels of Sergeant Shriver's family. And, uh, and they were younger and very hip. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the Kennedy clan, right? Right. Yes. And my parents were older and wonderful people, but not what I would call hip. <laughs> um, they were uh, great people. My um, So in the meantime, during the time that we were at Avenue Diana, the United States had just bought the Rochille House, mm. which is on um, Rue du Faubourg Saint-Honoré, right next to the English residence. This beautiful palace of a house. Mm. And my parents were charged with moving the embassy residence from Diana to Faubourg Saint-Honoré. And that's where I ended up living. I was still in boarding school when my father moved, my parents moved with our three younger brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister and I were still in a boarding school, and my eldest sister was, I think, maybe just starting college. Uh, boarding school was in what country? Um, it was in Connecticut. Oh, I went ba- to uh, Westover. Okay. So, um, so you were there part of the time during that, because you were in school at the beginning, and then you, wh- what happened? You moved there full-time? Well, I didn't go to college. I, at some point, decided that school was not the right place for me to be. I was not never a very good student. I was never a, a typical learner. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think it speaks to why I'm so involved in education today because <laughs> I would have loved to have had somebody come up to me and say, mm-hmm. you're a smart girl. We're not teaching you correctly. Yeah. Um, so I didn't go to college. And you remember, I graduated in 71. You remember what the 70s were like in this country. Vietnam War era. Wild. Mm-hmm. Wild country. It was the Vietnam War era and sex, drugs, rock and roll. My parents said there is no way that you are staying in the United States. Talk about... Talk about parenting. Parenting, <laughs> you know, yes. jumping in and, and saving the ship. Yes. Um, so they they forced me to go to Paris, and I went. For You didn't want to go when you uh, used the Kicking word for, and screaming. Kicking and screaming. Did not want to go. I liked my friends here. I liked my hippie life. I liked what I was up to. I did not want to go to Paris. And they forced me to go. Mm. And it literally took me a year to get acclimated. Mm. I, I, I had the great fortune of having a phenomenal French teacher when I was in seventh grade who uh, just taught us how to conjugate verbs. Mm. And I had that basis yep. to the language. So when I got to Paris, it wasn't that hard for me to learn the language. And once I learned the language, once I was dreaming in French, I was fine. Is that the kind of the mark of when you, you know another language, when the dreams are in that language? I think so. Yeah. And then, of course, it was the Vietnam War, and we were embroiled in Paris peace talks, and we were not popular in, in France. Yeah, the Americans were not. Mm-mm. They hated us. Really? So, so you, I you learned French. Some, some of that? Oh, totally. Totally. When I was living there as the young, when I was first there, um, we had Secret Service following us. Is that, so, is we that were, common for amba- ambassadors today? Not as far really. As you know? Not, not, not that I know of. I think, you know, we were, um, we were not liked. Uh, my parents were getting a lot of threats. Mm. And uh, I'm guessing it probably is similar to what was going on um, when Jane um, uh, Hartley was there. She was the Obama uh. um, replacement. Um, I, I'm imagining because they, we had those those bombs and all that violence. Yeah. She probably was at risk. Mm. It was it was similar time. Very disruptive. Mm-hmm. May soixante-huit. The country was kind of embroiled in a lot of political back and forth. And I learned how to speak French like a French person because I did not want anybody knowing that I was an American. So the thing is the accent, as you well know, because mm-hmm. uh, you can speak French, but the accent gives it away. So you had, you had the, a legitimate, genuine accent. that. Well, I had it as close as I could get yeah. it. Yeah. I, I never was mistaken for an American. People thought I was English or maybe German, but they never knew I was an American. Because they never I imagined was, Americans could speak French that well. Well, I made sure that I could speak French that well yeah, because yeah, I yeah. just didn't want to be out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so as part, so you were, you were um, um, living, at, I guess, at home, we can call it, part of the time. You were in boarding school, then you, you finished, and you, where did you live then when you... So when I first went, I moved to the residence. I lived with my parents at the residence yeah. uh, for about six months, and then um, I was by then probably 20 and really needed my own space. So I moved to an apartment in the 16th. What street was it? Rue Boileau. Uh, 
my family and I lived in Paris for one year, we were on Avenue Mozart. Oh, that's a lovely avenue. Be- beautiful area. So this, so it's right off of the Porte Saint-Cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived there for a, maybe a year. I worked as a, a Montessori teacher mm-hmm. and um, really loved doing that. Um, and then I moved in with my friend who ran the Montessori school. Um, she had two children, and the four of us lived together, Rue Lille, which is right off uh, Boulevard Saint-Germain. Yes. Fabulous street. The center of... Uh of the uh, bohemian lifestyle. That was be- was that before all the kind of high-end shops moved in on Saint-Germain, you know, Ralph Lauren and uh, yes. everyone else. This is when it was really, you know, the French Quarter, if you will. Yeah, I mean, broadly defined because I know it's the defined. fifth, there's the sixth, and yeah, um, it was a neighborhood. Yes. I lived right ne- next to the Gare d'Orsay, so which is now a museum. It's the Musée d'Orsay. Um, it was a neighborhood. Yeah, right, right. And, and I lived there for quite a while. I uh, worked for a theater troupe, mm-hmm. and I worked briefly for the American Hospital in mm-hmm. Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, my father got me the the gig <laughs> because he wanted me to be very well employed. Yes. It was not the right gig for me. <laughs> um, and then I moved to uh, Leal. Um, oh, right. uh, I moved um, to the Place des Vosges. So I moved around Paris. All right. Place des Vosges, for those who don't know it, is one of the absolute most gorgeous places with uh, the park. I remember the lavender lavender they, they bring out in the spring. Um, beautiful, beautiful area. So you, you, you were a Parisian. You, I mean, you lived, you lived the life. And, um, uh, and how much um, involvement or interaction did you have with what was going on politically? Uh, through your father, I suppose, at that time. Oh, I had very little interaction because I was a 19-year-old pip, hmm. and I didn't want to be the daughter of the ambassador at all. I mean, in hindsight, when I think about it today, I think, what a missed opportunity. <laughs> what was I thinking? Yes, but here's an, another example. Can the parent tell the kid something the kid doesn't want to know? And would it have worked if your if your dad... Uh, had said, you've got to, you know, you've got to be hanging out with us because you're going to meet so many interesting people. It'll be very fulfilling. And you didn't want anything to do with it at that time. I didn't. And I was also very, very shy. Mm. Um, And so it was difficult. It was very, I don't know if I'm very shy or I try to be authentic. I don't do well at cocktail parties, Mm. even today. Mm. I can't come up with sort of things to say. Yeah. I'm I'm an intense human being. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting what you're saying about the cocktail party thing. Because um, I'm not a big fan of them myself, and and this is actually one of the reasons I started to do this podcast series. And it's a very selfish reason, and hopefully there will be a lot of other benefits that will that that are coming to people who are listening. But so many of conversations in life are rather, um, you know, they're just they're just kind of flitting around a little bit. You know, they're superficial. Let me get right down to it. Um, until you really know someone very well. But, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about your, your grandchild. We're talking about your children. We're talking about your life as a, as a 20-year-old and, and, and after that. And we're having a real conversation, and there are ideas, and there's your life in that. And that's just, we don't do that enough. Um, now, I, know, I realize it would be odd in a different circumstance. If we met at a cocktail party and I started quizzing you like this, you'd say, who is this guy? Uh, 
But maybe there's a there. Maybe we need to go back to some of these real conversations. You know, I think there's a lot of people like this, this salon uh, image. You know, and that's another French thing, of course, uh, where people get together for a dinner party or they get together for you know go for a walk in the woods. Go where, just a small group, and they talk, and they don't just talk in about things in general. They talk about things that people care about, and I think there's a. Uh, I feel like there's a, a gaping not whole, but there's something missing in modern society and the way people live their lives that we don't, we don't have that. You have to create it, I think. Um, we actually do this thing in Vermont. There's a group of us that have been friends for probably 20 years mm. now, and we have this World Policy Council mm. dinner mm-hmm. where we'll all get together, sit around a round table. We really try. It's very hard to do this, but we try to come up with the topic. Mm-hmm. And then we try to allow each person at the table to actually say what they need to say or say what they feel yeah. before we interrupt. And um, yeah. and it's, it, it's a wonderful group of people. We talk politics. We talk art. We talk – we just have a respect for one another. Um, mm-hmm. And we – you know, so we're not great at – the topic, sticking to the topic, because eventually, you know, somebody breaks down and we interrupt <laughs> each other. When we first started this, we had a wonderful person who was running. The moderator. The moderator, yes. who was really good at it. I'm not a good moderator. I, 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 will just, I will just put that out there. I'm a terrible moderator. So, and, but, but we keep trying to do this, and it's fun. We have a core group of people to get together, and we yeah. talk about stuff yeah. that we care about. Right. I'm hearing that type of model more and more. And I, I, for example, in my case, um, I created a men's book club because women seem to always be in book clubs and men seldom are. And now since I've done that, it's been a couple of years, um, I come across people that have other men's book clubs. I thought it was an original idea. It doesn't matter. But we created it and there's, there's 10, 12 guys that show up all doing interesting work and we talk about a book, and the book is the platform or a vehicle to get into all sorts of other topics. And everybody walks away saying, you know, we don't have that type of conversation. And men, it's, it's I, I, this is Harder. a stereotype, but I think it's probably true, right? Men, men don't talk quite as much about real stuff other than if it's business-oriented or it's about sports, um, um, but about ideas, about feelings, about life. It's, it's rare, but there's a giant need for it. There's a real... Uh, the real desire for people to be part of that. I could see that. Particularly with all the social media, our cell phones, our computers, all the stuff that helps us stay isolated. Interesting you said that. I I know I'm interrupting you. No, it's okay. um, To help us, you said that that help us become isolated. And the irony is, this is why I interrupted you, is because the cell phone is all about communicating and interacting. It's, the purpose is exactly the opposite to the result that you're describing. But it's a machine. And we mm-hmm. aren't looking at each other in the eye. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, having, a fo- having to focus on somebody and look each other in the eye and speak um, is pretty critical to having a relationship with mm-hmm. somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, right, but this, the, the very the very tools that have been created to enhance communication, and business world, I think it's succeeded, um, maybe too much because people are always on, and you know you could always be called about something or other. Um, as you just said, and I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but 
lead to isolating us. I have a feeling a lot of younger people, going back to that, might not view it that way. They feel like, and this is too much of a generalization, but let's say many people feel like it connects them to other people through texting, through Facebook, though Facebook seems to be a bigger thing for older people than it is for younger people anymore, but regardless. Um, um, but yeah, I do see the isolating, the isolating part. Uh, at least how we, meaning, let's say, our generation, um, baby boomers plus whatever you call it, um, um, we grew up in a different, in a different way. Um, but I, uh, I also don't want to hold up baby boomers as anything great because we've really messed up a lot of things for <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> but that's a topic for another, another podcast or another visit or what have you. Um, so uh, we didn't mean to mess it up. Well, and I don't think we all can take responsibility for messing it up. I think there are baby boomers who are extraordinary. Of course. Um, of, of course. I mean, look at the music that we introduced to the world. Mm. Think about that. I'm not going to argue against my, my little group here, a big group of class, but you, when you look at the condition of the world with respect to climate change uh, in particular, um, that wasn't created by 20-somethings. It wasn't mm -hmm. created by millennials. It, um, we were we had our finger on that on the pulse on that one. We did, but I also would say that we inherited a lot of that. I remember when I was nineteen or twenty years old, yeah. I refused to use plastic hmm. and I refused to use paper towels. And my mother was horrified. Huh. She just could not accept the fact that I would not use this incredibly wonderful invention, paper towels. <laughs> And it was because when I was at Westover, mm -hmm. we had our first Earth Day, and I went out on the street with my bag, and I cleaned up trash. And it changed my entire life. I was 16 years old, mm. and I picked up trash from the street mm. that prior to that experience, I had been a wonderful yeah. contributor. Right, right. You know, chew gum, throw the wrapper outside. Mm. There's some mystical critter out there that's <laughs> going to pick it up. That was literally how brain dead I was. Yeah. Bring home a huge bag of trash that you've picked up and it it's an awakening. So I think, you know, I think we inherited the industrial revolution our generation mm -hmm. as this great fantastic advance. Mm -hmm. For my mom it was a huge advance. And I think it took us a little longer than it should have to mm -hmm. start to well, it is to wake up. It is. It is definitely the case. If you think about post World War II society and what's happened, and the conveniences for the modern housewife, if you will, um, especially for food, which was where processed food came from, and I think many people have discovered, or maybe not all, but how dangerous that is, and how how all those additives and preservatives and other things are really bad for you. And so, of course, there's been a giant movement over the last 25 years, and that's accelerating towards more organic food, farm-to-table. Alice Waters, of course, played such a giant role in that. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we're, 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 I say we're culpable, but we're, we got a lot of company. We got a lot of company. Yes. Um, so uh, let's, uh, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have the last uh, segment with Jane, uh, Jane Watson-Stetson, uh, talking about uh, a couple of things around, around her career that I think uh, a lot of people will be curious about. I certainly know I am. We'll be right back. 
We're back with Jane Watson Stetson, and uh, we've been talking about all sorts of uh, things about uh, Jane's uh, background in life, including living in Paris and some of the challenges uh, and opportunities uh, there. We're talking about parenting, and we, we touched a little bit on, on your role, Jane, as um, um, really the chair of the uh, fundraising committee for President Obama, uh, and that must have been a, um, a tremendous experience. What, what did you... What did you learn as 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 part of that? Well, first of all, what 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 does it mean to be uh, a, a fundraiser? What what do you do? I mean, how do you ask people for money? <laughs> Fundraising is uh, is really an interesting sport. Um, I think I was good at fundraising because I had been fundraised so much in my life, so I was pretty clear about what not to do. Mm. Uh, or I should say, I am pretty pretty clear today about what not to do. Um, I, I really believe that fundraising is about building relationships mm-hmm. and that it's not just a phone call asking somebody to donate to your cause. It's really about getting to know people, mm-hmm. getting them to know your cause, um, and sort of assessing whether they want to be involved or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, very much, for me, about building relationships. Yeah. And I love that part. How, how did you how did you kind of get to get there? Because I think you said earlier you were you were shy as a, a young woman, and now you're building relationships with all sorts of people. And at the end of the day, everyone knows there's a request for money at some stage if that relationship takes hold. I'm still shy, but I'm authentic, <laughs> uh-huh. and I care about people. Yeah. And I think if you are authentic with people, and you care about them, and you don't put um, a lot of stock in whether you get something or you don't get something. You know, some people will give you money, some people won't. Um, I, I think if you can do the job in that way with sort of an open heart and uh, doing the best you can to raise the money, but if you don't get it from everybody, it's not a reflection either on me or them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it works. I don't know. Yeah. It works. Um, uh. Yeah, <laughs> building those relationships, uh, and I mean, it must have been something to see. You're you're pretty good at it. Um, I mean, you, you I think originally you uh, you had a smaller sum. I don't know about smaller sum, but a sum of money you had you, you were charged with with raising, and then um, that went. And I think you, maybe you may, you may have had some doubts whether you could even do that the first time. Is that right? Yes. Uh, so when I when I joined the Obama, I had been fundraising for years locally, um, and and truly the way that I did it was I worked hard. Mm-hmm. I was like a dog with a bone. I'd get on the phone and mm-hmm. I'd call mm-hmm. and I'd call and I'd call and I'd call. And I'd call again. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, if somebody said, no, thank you, I would not harass them. Mm -hmm. I would let it go and go on to the next person. But um, when I got the job uh, with uh, – when I I took the role of of, – before the national finance chair, when I was raising for Obama, um, we were asked to raise $250,000 to be on the national finance committee. Mm -hmm. And I went down to Boston and met with a guy who was running the New England um, group. And I remember driving back with my husband and saying, oh, my God, how am I ever going to raise $250,000 in Vermont? Mm. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And, you know, in those days, 
he was such a breath of fresh air that people were just wowed by him. Yeah. And so it was pretty easy. It was actually. Easy. It was. It was amazingly easy. And I ended up raising three times what I had to raise. Wow. Um, with persistence, mm. um, uh, perseverance, mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. a great a great cause. Right. Right. Um, when I became national finance chair, uh, things veered slightly um, to the south in terms of success because um, Obama was elected. Um, we are a fickle nation, hmm. even though we all loved him dearly, or we all. Not quite m- accurate. My group, mm-hmm. my people, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, loved him dearly. When he became president, I think people expected the Messiah to kind of wave a magic wand mm. and fix it. Mm-hmm. And they only got a human. And so people were very, very hard on him. Yeah. And I remember 2009, 2010 were very hard time to raise money. Again, you know, perseverance, getting out there, meeting people. How did I do that? How did I get over my shyness? I um, was trained from the time I was a little girl because of my background. Uh, Maybe you want to say a little bit about about that background so so people can um, see the context. My granddad started IBM. My father was chairman of IBM World Trade, and we had Christmas parties every year in New York at the Waldorf Astoria. (laughs) And we would drive in on the Merritt Parkway and my parents' station wagon. My parents were both smokers, and I remember the Arpege perfume. We'd get to this event, and we'd just be green, all of us, sick as dogs. But then we'd have to go around to all the employees that were invited to that Christmas party. There were a lot of people at this party. Huge, in our little little dresses, and we'd have to shake everybody's hand. Mm -hmm. I was the number two child of the Arthur K. Watson family. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that's h- how we did it. We went around and we curtsied. We had to curtsy when I was a really? kid. Really? hmm My mother made us curtsy. <laughs> um, so I got trained early on, yes. um, in meeting people, greeting people, always, when you walk into a room, introduce yourself, shake their hands, look at them in the eye. So I had at least the basic skill right. of how do you open a conversation? How do you put people at ease? Um, and, you know, once, I, I think it's like any training. Once you fall into your training, that's the easy part. And then it's about, I, I think, um, you know, then growing up in my family, also being judged as a, um, you know, whatever people judged me as. Was I a rich heiress? Was I, uh-huh. um, you know, a lazy person? Was I cruel, you know, all the things we associate with wealth. Uh, did I, was I stingy, um, or was I, f- you know, phenomenal because I was wealthy? I mean, y- it's hard to be mm. authentic or who you are. People attribute it to, to the fact that you come from, you know, the, the Watson family. When you're the IBM heiress, you are, you have that label. So yes. you can't just kind of be, um, you know, and then you have your parents' expectations of mm. how you comport yourself. And, right, right. Uh, how, how did you? How did you kind of deal with that? That the, no matter what you did, people will doubt that it was really it was really her. It was really Jane. 
because oh, she has all these advantages. It's been hard. Yeah. It's taken me years. Really? Um, I, I, I think probably when I took the job as national finance chair mm-hmm. is when I finally proved to myself that I was um, somebody that had was acceptable. And it was really because um, while I had the advantages of having the money and the advantages of having the name, which didn't hurt, um, for these very reasons, because people thought I was somebody, even if I wasn't anybody, because I had that name. Yeah. Um, I, when I took that job, I was able to use it to, the, to my advantage, but also I was, able, I, I was able to recognize that I did the work, that, um, that the name was helpful, mm-hmm. that the money was helpful because it allowed me the time, mm-hmm. but nobody else was doing the work. I was actually putting the time in and doing the work, and that gave me enormous satisfaction, and it gave me um, my own credibility, which is what I had been struggling with. It it gave you a sense of of meaning and and purpose, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which every every one of us, no matter who we are, is what we're looking for, what what, what we need, uh, what we want. Um, And, you know, it's kind of a natural segue to some of the work you've done um, over at the uh, Piney Wood School, and in particular, um, um, this sense of for and, and I'll ask you to describe you know what that work is and what the school is all about. But for each for each kid that maybe doesn't have advantages at all, maybe actually opposite to how you grew up, uh, that they also want a sense of meaning. They also want a sense of accomplishment. And what can we do as 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 educators and supporters of of education? Uh, to help people get to that place that is so meaningful. Can you share a little bit about that journey? So the Pineywood School um, is run by a friend of mine who I met at the DNC. He was president of, um, or uh, he was voter protection council at the DNC. And we became friends. And the school was started in 1909 by the first African-American to graduate from the University of Iowa. And he started this school for the kids of sharecroppers uh, because they had no future. What resonates for me with the Pineywood School is even though I had enormous advantages growing up, I was not a good learner. And I did not get the education that I probably should have gotten because people didn't understand my particular kind of learning disability. So... um, so for me, equity in education, and this is so far flung from the fact that, I mean, you couldn't say that my life was inequitable, but mm-hmm. for me, equity in, in education is extremely important, and people should not be left behind. And there's a whole segment of our population that live in neighborhoods or communities or zip codes that don't have the same um, services as other people. So, for instance, um, in Mississippi, and Mississippi is just where I am, um, there are a lot of kids from the Delta who don't have decent, um, a decent education. So the Pineywood School is a boarding school for high school students. And we don't cherry-pick kids. We pick kids who have grit and determination, um, and we give them a four-year education ostensibly 
not, it's not a completely free because uh, we believe that everybody should contribute something. Mm -hmm. But it's a pretty, it's a pretty strong scholarship school. You know, all of our kids are on scholarship. Um, it's on a farm, a two thousand acre mm -hmm. um, farm. Um, we are revamping it from a traditional education to a twenty-first uh, century STEM-based education. We have solar panels mm -hmm. dedicated by Tesla, um, or donated by Tesla, uh, and we have this fantastic farm that we've revamped. It's a it's a it's a yeah. reboot of a of mm. an amazing school that has been in existence for 109 years, started in Jim Crow South. Right, amazing, and uh, the kids that are there, you're already seeing the impact on those kids. I I know. Oh, absolutely, and in fact, the president of the school, who is my friend, is a graduate of the school. Oh, how do you like that? And went to University of Chicago, Harvard School of Ed, wow. and University of Virginia Law School just to name a few of his accomplishments. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so this is one school in Mississippi. How many students? We have, we have a small student population because when he took over, the school was really floundering. So yeah. we probably have about 100. We have capacity for 300. You're and you're going to work your way there. As oh, you... we're building like crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I and so it's, it's a great story, and it's a fantastic impact on people that would almost certainly not have that. But I think, I think you know, there are a lot of places like, like Mississippi and Delta and, and a lot of places where schools like this and efforts like this are needed. Um, and, and, you know, every now and then I find someone, I talk to someone, I read about someone that's doing this, and it's almost like we need, it's like you plant, you plant a tree and each tree can, can bloom. Uh, we need more trees. Um, all over, all over the country, including in, um, well, actually, even in Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine, which has you know quite a poor rural population, as 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 you know, um, but you have to start somewhere. And so, well, there's the Sharon Academy in Vermont. Yeah, it's not that there aren't any. That which is certainly there are in the same similar yeah fashion that that we're trying to work. And f and frankly, there are very big similarities mm. between the poverty in Vermont and the poverty in Mississippi. Really, we're a smaller state. But there, as you said, there there are pockets in our state where kids just don't get what they need. Yeah, they just don't. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's appalling, and it's what we need to do. It's what I feel compelled to yeah. help change. Right, right. And I could see this is kind of where you continue to get purpose and meaning in your own life, having an opportunity to have that have that impact. I I've always felt like what people want, and unfortunately a lot of people don't get that, is they, they want to make a difference somehow. Um, they want to know they count, that they're important, that their life was not just there for years. And, and different people interpret it different ways. Some, for some people, it's, you know, could be making a lot of money, having a big house. Uh, other people could be, you know, being a teacher or helping others or building a school, uh, raising money for someone you really believe in. But everyone, everyone wants that. And mm -hmm. I feel like... Um, in school, we, we don't, uh, I'm talking about now middle and high school, we don't talk about that enough. We don't put that out en enough as something. Maybe part of the reason is um, because so many people are not going to be able to fulfill that. We may be best off just doing the basics and hoping, f hoping for the best. Um, but I, I, I know that the more you talk about something, in terms of education now and learning, the more you talk about something, the more you, um, um, you kind of put it into the, into the open. Uh, more creativity can come 
can come to bear. More ideas, more more people can get energized around that. You never, you know, you, we're never going to hit, uh, you know, 100% success here. But I think the number in this country, as wealthy as America is, is really um, um, unacceptably low. You know, you talked about um, why our kids aren't voting. Yeah. I've often thought that one of the things that we should introduce is a national service program mm. so that all high school stu students before they go to college should have to spend a year, like in Israel, you go into the army. Here, mm -hmm. you should have a program mm. where you have to serve, particularly in light of the fact that we have all these elders like me coming along. <laughs> um, it's such a great learning experience for kids to have the sense that they can make a difference. Right. And and I think it would take some of that lethargy about voting away. If you felt like you could actually affect a difference in somebody's life life through service, mm -hmm. you have a much better understanding of sort of... I agree. And it could take all kinds of forms. It doesn't have to be just one one style. There's so many ways to think about how you could help other mm -hmm. help other people. Um, and the other benefit is something I've talked about uh, and continue to talk about on the podcast is gratitude. Gratitude is like is the greatest gift you can give for yourself because it actually makes you – in fact, I think there's things that are going on in how our brains process that, that we actually can enhance our own personal health by demonstrating and behaving in a, in, in, in a more grateful way in addition to the obvious about helping somebody else, which is important in and of itself. Um, yeah, I think I think your your thought about that, your idea about that, is really great. And you know, now just off the top of my head, maybe it's retiring baby boomers that should actually show the way, um, because I talk to a lot of people that are uh, 60, 65, 70 that have great careers and they want to know what's next. And none of them want to just play golf all day long. Some some might like golf. It's not that golf is bad. They just don't. They want to keep. They want to keep going. That's the, kind of been the hallmark of baby boomers. Always keep going. Wouldn't that be something to set an example by creating uh, some experiments of this type of service? And maybe it's not a year. Maybe it's, you know, even if it was one month, it's still something. Um, or three months or whatever. What a program that would be with baby boomers showing, kind of leading the way on that. Or if you could do a year of service and have a year of college education taken off the top. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Paying for your, your Getting education. Getting some type of credit. It's like advanced placement. It's like, like advanced placement in, in service. Mm. Right. I mean, mm. we should do that. Yeah. Let's do it, Sid. Um, okay. <laughs> Actually, I'm happy to to uh, brainstorm and maybe even join in in the venture because I'm thinking about what I'm going to be doing next also. I love what I do. I'm never going to retire officially um, because it's too much fun. And actually, my, being, my business is as an educator. You're always trying to help other people. But there are a lot of other avenues for that, too. Um, so let's, uh, let, let's get to some of our uh, kind of more general favorite questions. Uh, kind of ma let's start with the magic ball. Imagine, Jane, you can go back to when you were 21 and you're talking to yourself. Um, and now, you know, you have, you're, you've, you've lived um, a, a life of, of accomplishment, of purpose, and of learning by, by hook or by crook, all of us. What would you tell your 21-year-old self? What advice would you give would you give her I would say go to college <laughs> it's a lot easier to go to college and to stay on a solid path than it is to go willy-nilly mm. um, 
And I guess I would also say act, don't react. And act as in, what do you mean exactly? Well, I think, you know, because I'm now old and wise, Yes. Um, I look back at myself as a 21-year-old, and mm-hmm. I was reacting. Mm-hmm. I was reacting to what people thought of me, what my parents wanted me to do, what my education had taught me. It was all reaction. Mm-hmm. Action would have required some deep thought yeah. about what I actually wanted right. to do. Right. Now, could I have done that? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I think, um, you know, many kids act. They grow up and they act. They take action. Right, right. Um, I think I spent a, a lot of time reacting. Right. I, I see that issue um, as um, a lot of people think about what they should do um, as opposed to just, just doing it. Um, and when you do something... You learn a ton as long as you're aware and alert and trying to get feedback and, and get better. Um, that's, that's actually excellent, uh, excellent advice. Um, kind of related to this, uh, if you could kind of create another life, ma- and magic ball of this stuff, is there some other career or other thing that you could and maybe even think about? I know occasionally I, I've thought about it. You know, if I wasn't a professor, what else would I have done? What other path would I have taken? Have you ever thought about that or anything comes to mind? I've thought about it. I've thought about it my whole life Mm. because I've never really known Mm. what I wanted to be when I grew up. (laughs) In part because of the family circumstance you described and um, um, maybe not going to college is one of the places where where you get that kind of intersection and think about that. I probably wouldn't have been a fundraiser. Mm. Um, I probably would have liked to have been an artist. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. I was, uh, I was really into art when I was younger, yeah. and uh, it's kind of gone by the wayside. But I think, if I were to go back, I would like to have, I would like to have had the patience to sit quietly mm. and pour out my innermost soul mm. on a canvas, right, or in a children's book, or in some form, in some of, form of right. art, right, and. Um, not not too late, of course. Um, well, my daughter just gave me the book, The Artist's Way, for Christmas. Huh. <laughs> because she's very intuitive. She is intuitive. <laughs> she did that. That's right. The Artist's Way. Um, yeah. I, why not? Well, you know, as long as, as as long as we start to get rid of this idea, we have to be great at anything, uh, because that's the killer, right? The quest for perfectionism. Uh, all high, almost all, maybe all. <laughs> Um, high achievement, uh, high ambition people. They're thriving. They're, they're striving towards that. But it's quite a, quite a barrier. Um, and also when you get, I mean, you know, to some degree, the fact that I was national finance chair was a big accomplishment for me. When it was over, and I knew this the entire time I was doing the work, mm-hmm. you know, I was powerful and people were, you know, excited to meet me and they were glomming on yeah, to me. Yeah. I knew that it was a facade. I knew when it was over, Mm -hmm. it would be over. It would be over. And I would no longer be powerful Mm -hmm. or appealing in that Mm -hmm. way to people. And thank God I knew that. Yes, exactly, because that becomes almost almost like an addictive drug for people in different fields. And and then this happens especially when people retire from high-profile jobs or or any job where you had a big responsibility, which is, I guess, what you did in terms of the 
the, the fundraising. Um, all of a sudden, you know, there, there's not a whole staff at your right. beck and call, and uh, everyone doesn't need to know everything you think about everything else. It's a transition. Maybe, again, we go back to your idea about this national service idea. That is another way to kind of work through that transition. Um, can I ask you how you met your husband? You may. Um, we met, actually, we met, I probably shouldn't say this, but we met when I was still married. Um, I either was mm -hmm. pregnant with a baby or I just had a baby. I can't mm -hmm. remember. We were both involved in politics. Yeah. And I remember meeting him and saying to myself, put the shades down, <laughs> walk away. Walk away, lady. Walk away, which I did. <laughs> right. um, and then I literally put the shades down so much that I didn't remember meeting him. I, mean, did, I literally did not remember him. Did not remember wow. meeting him. Um, I literally put yeah, the shades you down. You did a good job. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, um, I, I, my husband, former husband and I divorced or separated. And my husband uh, invited me, my current husband invited me to a party. And so I went to this party and we had a great time, this group of people. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought he was with another woman. So I, again, mm -hmm. didn't pay much attention mm -hmm. to him. He was cute. Yes. But I kind of Evidently. ignored him. <laughs> and we went home at the end of the party. I went home. And um, I had a trampoline outside my kitchen at that time. And I was putting dishes away or something. And I looked out the window and there was somebody sitting on my trampoline. So I went out and it was Bill. <laughs> and we sat on that trampoline and we talked all night long, literally till the wee hours of the it was morning. It's like a movie, you realize. <laughs> oh, it was so great. And we just never left each other's sides. Mm. After that, um, our first date was at Thelma and Louise. Uh, the, 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 movie. the movie. And he talked all the way through it and criticized, and well, at least halfway through it. And I finally said, look it, why don't we leave this movie? <laughs> I'll go back and watch it when I can right, right. actually focus. I'm enjoying it. But for the discussion, right? I mean, that's how our relationship has been. It's that's just funny. been. Um, how long have you been married? How long have we been married? We have been married um, twenty-five years. Wow, it's a great it's a great story. Yeah. So Jane, let's um, maybe wrap up with one of the other Sidcast favorites, which is a little word association game. If you're if you're up for it, okay. Um, it's been uh, it's been been fun, and uh, so this is just the first word that pops in your mind. As you know, there's nothing right or wrong, just whatever it is. Um, okay, Paris. Oh, this is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Only one word. Although most people can 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 cannot limit themselves to just that the one word. But Place de Vosges is that okay? Is that kind of a yeah? It's what it's the image that pops into your head. Place de Vosges. Okay. Um, Obama. Wonderful. IBM. Intense. Education. I would say difficult is what came to my sure, head. Sure, sure. Um, and then finally, um, um, your life. Gratitude. <laughs> That's great. Jane Watson Stetson, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you.